You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Brendan Wood, who is using Django and Python to power a service called Passive, which helps you manage your investments in a brokerage account. Brendan, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about Passive? Absolutely. So my name is Brendan Wood. I am one of the founders of a company called Passive, and Passive is automation software for your brokerage account. We make it easy for you to build a balanced ETF portfolio and to stick to it. So this works by linking your brokerage account to Passive and choosing a target portfolio in Passive. Okay. So I'm sort of a newbie here when it comes to trading. When you say a brokerage account, do you mean someone like Interactive Brokers or E-Trade? Yeah, exactly. So um, brokerages being uh, companies that allow you to buy and sell stocks and ETFs and whatnot in an account. Um, so Interactive Brokers is actually a great example. That's one of the platforms we support. Um, TD Ameritrade is another one. Uh, there's also Quest Trade and Alpaca. Oh, okay. What is that other one? Uh, I don't trade much, but the one that's like really popular in mobile apps, like Robinhood, I think it is. Um, yeah, Robinhood's another example of uh, a brokerage. Uh, we would like to support Robinhood, uh, but they don't have a public API that we can use at this point. Okay. Yeah, so that makes sense, right? Probably don't want to do something like web scraping when it comes to something as sensitive as this. Exactly. Um, there are companies out there that do, um, you know, scraping of brokerage accounts and bank accounts. Like, uh, I guess um, Mint is a good example of that. They, you know, they're budgeting software and whatnot. Um, and that, that works for things like budgeting. But when uh, you're talking an application like Passive, uh, we're helping you make decisions in your account um, as to like how to buy and sell securities. Like you're, you're managing your investments. And uh, these calculations need to be done in real time with live data. So any sorts of delays in scraping your account are just aren't acceptable. So we need to work with companies that provide APIs so that we can look directly at your account and do things on the fly. Right. That's actually pretty cool to hear. You know, whenever I think of like, you know, trading accounts and banking and things like that. I think of like really slow move, moving, like really old tech and stuff like that. So it's cool to see that some of these brokerage accounts are offering an API to connect to. Absolutely. Um, I, brokerage accounts are interesting because they're um, they're kind of like tech companies. You know, everyone kind of looks at them as if they're banks because they're regulated like banks. And to some extent, you know, they are because they're holding your money and so on. But um, online brokerages were, you know, some of the first companies to embrace the internet and provide like, you know, real time live trading functionality through a web browser. Um, and it's really like kind of an amazing development when you think about how these companies were started back in the, you know, 80s, 90s and 2000s. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then you, you fast forward to today with like high frequency trading and like, what is it probably like millions of transactions a second going through them easy? Yeah, exactly. So going back to your site, how long has it been up and running for? We've been running in production for three years, um, and it started about four years ago as a as a basically a Python script that I wrote for myself. It was only about fifty lines of code when it started, and so I built the first version for myself because I was doing um, ETF investing in my brokerage account. So I had I had a bunch of different accounts. I had a few um, tax sheltered accounts, and I had um, an education savings plan for my kids, and they all had like different. Uh, risk tolerances and investment horizons. And so they had different uh, targets for how I wanted to invest my money in those accounts. And so I was doing this sort of manually um, at first using an Excel spreadsheet. And uh, that 
kind of got to be tedious and painful after a while. And, I, and then I realized that my brokerage, uh, Questrade, uh, had an API, a developer API. And so I thought, oh, you know, I'll just write a script. So I sat down on, on a weekend and I wrote this little script that kind of provided the basic functionality that I wanted in um, a service. And eventually it turned into a public web app that anybody can use to automate their brokerage accounts. Oh man, I love it. I love the stories of just scratching your own itch with something really simple like a Python script. And then it's like fast forward a couple of years later and it's like now you have a real service that hopefully people are buying and, uh, you know, it helps you, you know, provide for your family, do whatever you want to do, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I guess you mentioned we, does that mean there's more than one person working on this? Yep, that's right. Um, so there are nine people who are involved with Passive right now um, in various capacities. Uh, four of us are working on it full time. And then there's a bunch of other collaborators who um, are uh, helping us in terms of um, partnering with brokerages, uh, building out the uh, technical aspects of our application that uh, we don't you know, have the capability for in-house and so on. Right. So out of those four who are working full time, is that uh, full-time developers or is someone else full-time working on something non-tech related? Uh, two are developers and uh, two are on business and marketing side of things. Okay. Yeah. Kind of need both uh, halves to have a successful business at some point. You do. You do. Uh, I mean, we were, we've always been like a little more developer heavy just because, you know, we're in the early phases of product development. Uh, but we're at the point now where we've realized that one of our, like our, our biggest bottleneck is marketing. You know, like we have an app that works really well and the people who use it seem to love it. Um, we just need to get it in front of more people. Right. Now, speaking of people, it's been running for a couple of years, a successful application. How many people have signed up for it? Uh, so there's uh, 3,000 active users. Um, there's, you know, a few thousand more accounts, but of course, only so many of them go on to link their brokerage accounts and go on to become, uh, you know, long-term users. Right. So if you don't mind me asking, like, how, how does the sign up flow work? Like if you're a user, you want to sign up, do you immediately need to pay per month or is it like commission based? Like how does that work? Yeah. So we have two tiers. So the first tier is a community tier, which is free. You can create your passive account for free, link it to your brokerage account, set a target, and we'll help you manage your money in that account. Um, that's free. And the intention is for that to always be free because um, I see it as sort of like giving back to the community that taught me so much about how to manage my own investments. And I, you know, I, I learned how to do um, ETF investing from the personal finance communities on Reddit. Um, you know, it's just people there are very gung ho to help you and they tell, teach you the things that you need to learn. Um, and so, you know, this was originally built as a tool for those communities with in mind because I was a member of those communities. Um, the other tier is um, a paid tier, and that costs $99 a year. And uh, this tier has more advanced capabilities like uh, our trading automation. Um, it allows you to uh, handle multiple accounts seamlessly. So you can take a bunch of separate investment accounts and manage them all together as a single portfolio, which is kind of cool, and a number of other interesting features. Oh, wow. Yeah, 99 a year sounds uh, pretty appetizing, right? I mean, you have thousands of people on the platform managing, you know, their entire investment accounts. I would imagine you're dealing with what, like tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars, like all combined or now? Yeah, it's, it's a few hundred million at this point. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's higher than I expected almost. Like I was thinking maybe somewhere in between, but that's awesome, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're, we're really excited about it. And it's, um, you know, it's that's one of the numbers that we've been tracking as like... Um, not because like it necessarily matters directly because we're not like making money off the amount of money that people are managing with passive, um, uh, you know, in, in, compared to like a, a robo advisor, like Wealthfront or Betterment, right? They take a percentage of your assets in exchange for managing it for you. Right. So we're not 
our revenues doesn't scale with that number, but we look at it as like an indication of like trust and how much people are using the software. And that's the most important thing to us. Yeah. I was seeing it as like a, you know, social proof. Yeah, exactly. So going back to what you said before about these brokerage accounts having APIs, uh, so people who sign up then, can they actually do transactions through your platform back to that brokerage account? Yes, they can. Um, so the basic type of integration is where we just uh, can see your holdings and your account balances. And we need this information to be able to see how close you are to your target. So essentially, you set a target in passive. You say, here is what I want my investment account to look like. So you um, choose the securities you want to invest in and you set a, a weight or like a target percentage for each one. And we compare that to your actual holdings and figure out what the difference is and what actions you need to take in order to bring yourself back into alignment. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's an interesting problem because it seems like, you know, real-time performance and, you know, you can't just have that not execute immediately, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, ideally, you want you want these things to be able to execute relatively quickly because um, the market changes. It's, you know, the prices are changing in real time as you're trying to make these trades. And so if you do the calculations and figure out here are the trades I need to make and then you wait 20 minutes, uh, that those trades may no longer be feasible. You might end up putting your account into uh, into the negative uh, by making those trades. Or you could make them and find out you have a bunch of money left over and then you need to do it again to allocate the remainder. So that's that's like the basic thing is, you know, well, we need to look at your account holdings and your balances and this will allow us to do the calculations. Uh, but um, most brokerages also have trading integrations available, which means that when we present you with this list of trades, we say, here are the things that you need to do in order to follow your target. Um, if you are on uh, the paid version of Passive, there's a button that allows you to just execute all of those trades in one batch, and it just takes a few seconds. Very cool. Yeah, and I mean, if you're dealing with like literally your life's investment, like a little bit of money per year is probably worth having that feature. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, there's just so many, so many ways that it can go wrong, like so many opportunities for human error when you're manually entering these orders. Um, so, you know, if it's just a couple of orders, Hey, maybe no big deal, but, um, accounts get, tend to get more complicated over time, especially as you add more accounts, you know, as your, as your wealth grows, you kind of max out your different taxable account, tax, sorry, tax shelter accounts. You might have kids. So you want an education savings account. Eventually you're going to be into a margin account and you need to execute these orders on all of these accounts and, um, typing them all in manually is is room for error if you forget a zero for example or you you know change something you know it's it's not great so it's 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 much better to just be able to click a button and be sure that it's done correctly yeah totally so earlier you mentioned that you know you're using django and python and here we are dealing with a pretty i would imagine like calculation heavy application right you got to do a lot of different number manipulation uh what made you choose python and django for this project so I've been writing Python personally for uh, probably about 12 years. Um, it's been my primary language for uh, most of that time. And it's my favorite language. I, I find that I'm really productive with it. Um, it's easy for me to do the things that I want to do. I don't always have to be you know, opening up Stack Overflow and checking how to do something. Um, so it was sort of like the default option for me. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Isn't that an amazing experience too? Like when you don't need to look something up every five minutes, you can kind of just get into the flow of things. And before you know it, it's like, you know, two and a half hours later and it's like, holy crap, I just wrote like these five features or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Just like the, the, the speed at which you can develop um, in, a, in a language that you're really familiar with is uh, very helpful. 
So, you know, that, that was sort of like a default option for me, but I personally believe that, uh, you know, Python and Django are an amazing combination for building web applications. They have, um, you know, one, one of the, the catchphrases about Python is that it, uh, it has batteries included, which means that it kind of has all the bells and whistles and things you need in order for it to be working pretty much right out of the box. Um, and if it's missing that particular thing, well, you just go get the package. And there's such a large ecosystem of software out there for Python that um, you can do most of the things you want to do without having to write a lot of boilerplate. Right. Or even if you can't find what you want to do, there's like, you know, probably plenty of blog posts or tips and, you know, avenues to go down to figure out what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. Now, when it comes to the non-web component, right, when you're dealing with all of these calculations, like which Python library do you use for that one? Uh, we use NumPy for all of our calculations, and that's really the core of our application. It's this uh, trade calculation engine. And, you know, the the first version that we wrote of this was really simple. Like, you know, in, in the, the shell script that I, or the, sorry, the, the early Python script that I wrote, the 50-line script, um, the calculation there was basically, you know, two lines of code. It was like, just look at the total equity divided by the current share price. Here's your target number of shares to own, and then take the difference between that and your current holdings, and that's the trade, you know, like it's very, very simple calculation at the core, but it's turned into like this massive, I mean, we call it an engine and it's because it really is an engine. It does a lot of different things and it has to work for a lot of different use cases. And so the complexity of it has sort of exploded and having to do this across uh, thousands of accounts um, is computationally a little bit taxing. And so having something like NumPy is really helpful. So NumPy is, um, probably the most popular numerical Python library. It does pretty much everything you'd want to ever want something out of a numerical library on Python. And because it's written in C, um, it, it's like a, it's a Python module, but it's, it's a C extension. Um, so it means that the code that you're running here is actually running like a C module that it calls, which means it's substantially faster than running native Python code. Right. Yeah. That makes total sense to use a library like that. I also like the idea that it's kind of like you know, you develop this backend engine and then sort of afterwards, you kind of just layer the web component on top of that. It's like, you know, this thing isn't just like intertwined within your Django app all over the place, right? Yeah, exactly. So now speaking of maybe the Django app and how all of this pieces together, is this generally just like one Django app that's like a monolithic app or do you have it broken up into like many different services? It's absolutely a monolith. Um, I've, I've tried the microservice approach before and it's helpful in some ways and also a hindrance in what I found to be a lot of ways. Um, I found that um, microservices mean that it's kind of like you're building a bunch of separate products that all have to be able to stand on their own. And if you're a small team, it's kind of difficult to um, divvy up those responsibilities and make sure that every, you know, you can pay attention to all of them. So it's, it's absolutely a monolith. Um, there are sort of like different services that it's built on top of, but they all kind of work together um, as a single unit. And that's not to say that we would never split them up, but it really comes down to like, you know, you need a really good reason to split it up because you lose a lot of, um, you know, the nice, um, what would you say? Convenience factors. The, the convenience, yeah, the fact that everything works really well together, it's because it's all one thing. Yeah, no, dealing with one monolith, uh, the complexity level is amazingly low. I mean, you know, developing a large application is hard enough, but if you're just dealing with one Git repo, uh, that does make things way easier to, you know, even get up and running in development and deploying for sure. Now, going back to your monolithic app here, do you have it broken up into Django apps or no? Um, no, we kind of have like the one main Django app. Uh, we actually... 
I guess we, we do have a couple of apps, but most of them are like not user facing. Um, so there are like two versions of the passive app itself, as far as the backend goes. Um, and one is like an older legacy version, which uh, we have since kind of moved beyond. And it was a big enough change that it was just easier to almost rewrite the whole thing as a new Django app. So we did that. Um, and then there's a few other apps that we use for um, just to kind of like other business things that we need for our own needs. And so it's like technically it's built into the, the passive app, but it's not user facing at all. Right. That sounds kind of interesting. So you actually have the legacy app and the current app both in the same project. I mean, is the legacy app completely decommissioned or did you kind of just like replace little bits and pieces at a time? It's completely decommissioned. Um, yeah, like, and, and that's kind of like a really hard problem when, when you're, um, when you're developing an application, if you realize that the original version of the app you built with certain assumptions and those assumptions were like, you know, way too conservative or, uh, you know, things have changed enough that you need to kind of really rethink how you do it. Um, it's, it's tricky because you, you know, you can either like upgrade the existing one or you can start fresh and build a new one. And generally I don't advise building, you know, like rewriting from scratch because that's a very painful thing and you lose out on a lot of like edge cases that are sort of like baked into your old code. So you almost have to like rediscover those as you're um, writing your new version. Uh, but for us, it wasn't too bad because we started the rewrite um, very soon after we started Passive. Um, like within the first year of running our application, it became very clear to us that um, the old code wasn't going to suffice for where we wanted to go with this. So uh, as an example, one of the limitations we had was that the old code was very tightly coupled to uh, Questrade's API. And it was built that way because it was built as a personal tool for myself, not because you know we, we didn't really intend on it being something that was going to run on lots of different brokerages all over the world. So just with that one assumption changing, it meant that we sort of had to re-architect our entire application. And um, we did the sort of cost-benefit analysis and realized that this would, is going to be so much easier if we just start from scratch instead of having to slowly migrate it and deal with all the legacy baggage that we would have uh, going forward. Right. That kind of makes sense, though, right? I know from personal experience, it's so hard to get. Like, imagine trying to get one of those brokerage abstractions correct before you even implemented it once for Questrade, right? Like that would be almost an impossible task. Exactly. And so I, I kind of like it, liken it to um, a prototype, you know? So the first version of Passage, which we, we did run in production, but we also ran it before we had any users at all, you know? Like it was almost like a test to see if anybody wanted something like this. Once we had validated that this is something that people wanted and that it goes beyond the scope of what we originally built, we're like, okay, that was, that was the proof of concept. Now we build the real one, right? <laughs> And, uh, yeah. you know, and, and thankfully we, we started it soon enough that it wasn't, it wasn't that painful to do the rewrite. It did take a lot of time and effort, but we ended up with something, um, far better. So fast forward to today, then like how big is this app in terms of maybe lines of code or like number of models at a high level? Yeah. So in terms of lines of code uh, on the back end, we've got 33,000 lines of code, um, like code that we wrote for ourselves for our app. Obviously there's a lot more than that when you count all the modules that we depend on. Um, but, um, I'm, I'm actually quite impressed that it's that low because, um, there's a lot of stuff that goes on there, but it's really that, you know, we're leveraging a lot of libraries like Django and Django rest framework and, um, you know, all the other ones we use to connect to third-party services that we use to run our application. Right. And does that, uh, line of code count include tests or no? 
Um, it does, yeah. Um, most of our tests are built around the, the trading engine. So like I said, that's the core of the application. And um, if that breaks, then it kind of breaks everything about the app. So, you know, if we start giving wrong recommendations, for example, right? Like that that's a problem, right? So it's a huge problem. So because that's the critical part of our app, we focus our tests around that. And we um, essentially, every time there's like a change, a main a change to the main trading engine, we can check and make sure that it's doing the same sorts of things now as it did before. And if it's different, we need to be able to justify, well, is it different in a correct way or a better way, you know? Yeah, I like that. Correct in a better way. Yeah, exactly. Maybe just made it more correct. Yeah, and it's kind of funny how many things are like that. Like I, I like you know, I always used to think you know, math is something that's absolute and it can be right or it can be wrong. But uh, when it comes to um, you know, trading, for example, right? Like it, it, there's a whole lot more nuance to it. So we we actually um, discovered something like this recently in, in terms of how we were doing our calculations. So we originally built our trading engine. So when you, you know, like there's a lot of flexibility in the trading engine and there's a lot of different ways you could get to the same place or get to the same overall goal. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of paths that could take you there. Um, and so you end up having to make choices about how you, like what sort of thing you prioritize. It's like, if you, if you have an infinite number of solutions, how do you pick one? Well, that's actually a good problem to have because now you can optimize for a particular attribute. You could say, well, I want to minimize the number of trades or I want to minimize the trading commission I pay. Or um, in in this case, like I said, we, we originally were doing like a trade minimization thing because uh, when we built the passive application originally, trading commissions were a thing. Like you'd pay five bucks a trade or whatever it was. Um, that's not really true anymore for US brokerages. And we realized that um, since we have this new functionality that lets people do dollar cost averaging in their brokerage account, the way that we were doing these calculations wasn't entirely apt for dollar cost averaging. So we were trying to minimize trades, which meant if you're allocating only so many, so much money that you want to spend in one chunk and you want to do it again next week to average the, the prices that you get over time, you want to buy a little bit of everything in your portfolio now, like with this, with this chunk that you're allocating today. And that's different from how we were doing it. If you wanted to minimize the number of trades, well, you would just take that certain amount of money and apply it to one security instead of spreading it evenly across all of them. And so like these things are subtle little ways that um, we have to think about how we do the trades. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I, li I like having options. Yeah, me too. Now, you mentioned you're using Django REST framework. So would it be safe to say that you do have an API backend with some type of JavaScript frontend? We do, yeah. So we have a pretty clean split between frontend and backend. And that wasn't always the case. Uh, back with the original version of Passive, it was like, it was a Django, a, a sort of like a more legacy type Django web application that was rendering HTML, like server-side rendering HTML. And there was like a little bit of dynamic stuff going on with JavaScript on the front end, but it was primarily an HTML page rendered by Django, which is what Django was built to do and it does a very good job at. Uh, but a more modern way of doing things, in my opinion, is to have um, like a JavaScript web application as the front end and it communicates to the back end through a um, JavaScript API or JSON API. So that's um, essentially what we ended up doing. So um, Django REST framework is an amazing module that um, uses all the great stuff that uh, Django has developed and it makes it really easy to um, replace sort of like the, the, the Django rendering portion um, replace it with something that, that implements an API. Okay. 
Yeah, I don't really have too much experience with Django, but Django REST framework seems to always come up when it comes to creating the API aspect, like the backend part. Going switching gears to the front end, uh, you mentioned using React. Did you make any comparisons to maybe other front end frameworks? Uh, we did. Now, front end is not really my specialty. Like I, I consider myself a full stack developer, but um, front end is like a little bit of like a weak spot for me. It's not. Um, I find it actually really difficult to keep up with all the developments in the JavaScript space. It seems like everything moves really quickly there. So the decision to use React was actually made by one of our collaborators who specializes in front end things. Um, and it's not to say that like this is the only option and that React is the best, but that uh, we sort of like looked at the pros and cons of different ones um, and chose React as a good fit for us. And also because it was something that our developer was um, proficient in, you know? Yeah. So it goes back to kind of like you're proficient with Django and Python. He's proficient with React. Like why not use those tools? Yep, exactly. And, and I'm really happy with the result. So prior to, um, like, like when I mentioned that we um, rebuilt everything uh, in, in like a big rewrite, that included the front end as well, because the front end was sort of like this really um, ancient style application that was just like, you know, generating HTML on the back end. And there was like a little bit of dynamic stuff on the front end. Like we had, um, we had some Vue.js stuff in there, but then we also had some, um, what's that other JavaScript library, jQuery stuff. And Anyway, it, it did work, but man, it was ugly. And anytime we wanted to change anything there, it was really, really painful trying to use jQuery to make like, um, you know, dynamic user interface elements appear and disappear and hide and send things over to an API in the background and so on. So having everything on uh, React and like with, um, you know, like a very intentional design behind it uh, has made it a lot easier for us to build things going forward. So now when we want to build a new component, well, there's an easy way of doing that. We sort of have this defined way that we do it and it's very simple. You just make the React component, you include the style right there in the component um, and it just kind of works. It, it's amazing. I've never had this much fun doing front-end development. Right, yeah. Fun and JavaScript for me are words that typically don't go hand in hand. But right. uh... <laughs> Sorry, I was gonna say they didn't go hand in hand for me either until, um, you know, this, this until my developer like introduced me to React and showed me how to use it. And uh, it's really changed my view of the whole ecosystem. Yeah, so I actually have not even written one line of React in my life, but I am aware of like the idea of splitting things out into components. And, and I think that idea is, is an amazing thing, right? Like that can be applied back to other things as well, but uh, you know, it, it's a very good pattern. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's um, I find it a lot like object-oriented programming. It's like a very similar mentality where you break things into logical components that have data and they have functions and they have an ability to communicate with each other. And, you know, in this, in this case, they have a view as well, like they'll render as a component in your browser. Yeah. So I would imagine, you know, probably have decent amount of JavaScript written right for the front end. Uh, which tools do you use, if any, to maybe deal with like bundling your assets? Do you use Webpack or something else? Yep. So we use Webpack for all of our bundling and stuff. Um, so like NPM, Yarn, like you know, um, I guess we started with NPM for package management and then eventually switched to Yarn. I just, um, I found that I was occasionally having issues when just trying to, you know, update the latest packages. Um, and Yarn seems to be handling that better for the most part in my experience. Um, so there's that. And yes, it's it's Webpack. Um, and there's a few other things that we uh, use there. So um, it is React, but we, um, uh, we started 
with JavaScript originally, just kind of like vanilla JavaScript, React sort of thing. And as the complexity of the front end grew, it became clear that we were going to need to start um, doing like type checking. And so we migrated over to TypeScript uh, pretty early into um, the new front end. So we've got about 20,000 lines of TypeScript right now. And uh, it's, uh, it's really handy. I, I actually didn't really like TypeScript when we started using it. Um, I found it hard to get my head around it. Um, less about like the type checking and more about how do you debug one of these type errors that TypeScript will throw at you. So for example, when you define a certain variable as like having a specific type and you don't say that it's allowed to be null, so it's not null, right? Um, and then somewhere in your code, there's something that might possibly be null at some point. Um, and that, you know, trying to track down exactly where that thing is coming from is somewhat painful. But it, it, it was painful until I kind of like developed a process to do it. And I think it was really just like a learning curve because, um, you know, Python is also not like a, a strictly typed language or anything, right? So it's kind of a bit of a paradigm shift. Yeah, for sure. But also probably for the better long term, right? Like having that type checking will help produce uh, many less bugs at runtime, one would hope. Absolutely. It's definitely for the better. It's, it always amazes me. Like I'll, I'll write a new component or I'll change something and I'll get these errors from TypeScript. And it's like, oh yeah, that, that would have caused problems for a lot of users. Thank you for catching that, you know? Yeah. Gotta love it when the computer or the compiler can do its job to help you out. Yeah. Now it is interesting though, from what I've read about TypeScript and people using it, isn't it completely backwards compatible with JavaScript, right? So like day one, Technically, you just copy paste JavaScript in there, rename it to TypeScript, it works, and then you can incrementally add your uh, typing to whatever. Is that how that works? Uh, yeah, and that's kind of how we did it. Um, a big part of the pain point for me, I think, was that like because it was incremental, whenever you try to, um, you know, like you'd have to like start from kind of the ground up and work your way up through all the modules. Um, whenever importing something from like trying to import from like an old JavaScript file, which didn't have typing built into it yet. Right. We'd either have to go back and redo that, or there was like some sort of like painful tricks to work around it. And there were a few issues where like, uh, some of the libraries that we depended on didn't have TypeScript versions available. And so, you know, it's like, well, you got to find the TypeScript version of that one in order to use, and then in a few even rarer cases, there were um, packages which had uh, bugs in them, which caused like also somewhat hard to deal with TypeScript errors. So like they would, um, I'm trying to think of an example here. Um, I can't think of the exact package, but it basically had something built into it where you're only allowed to have a certain number of string, um, uh, like choices from a set of strings, like an enum basically. Um, and it had the wrong one built into it. And so we had to like kind of push this change upstream and everything before we could actually get it working with the code correctly. Interesting. So you ended up what, just submitting a pull request, getting that patched in and then uh, things work? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, it took some time to do, right? Because yeah, it's an open source project and you know, it's not like we can crack a whip and get people to take our pull requests, but it was surprisingly fast in my opinion. It only took about a week or so to get a pull request in and merged. Yeah. That's what I really love about open source, right? It's like a I mean, relatively speaking, it's kind of easy to get, uh, you know, modifications or get the thing working for your project versus, you know, imagine it's closed source, right? It's like, what do you do then? It would be a much different story. Yeah, exactly. You got to go to the vendor and hope that they take you seriously, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, speaking of open source versus closed source, you know, I did take a look at uh, your Git repo, right? Correct me if I'm wrong here. Your entire front end is open source on GitHub right now, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so um, that was that was kind of like a new thing that we released when we rebuilt um, our our whole front end and back end, right? We realized we're like, well, now that the front end is completely separate, um, we can open source this. Like, there's no reason not to. 
Um, and so we did, and it's been, it's been interesting. Um, like we've gotten a little bit of collaboration from, from outsiders on it, but not a whole lot yet. Uh, but we also haven't like promoted it too hard. It's not like we've emailed all of our users and told them, go, go send us pull requests. Yeah. That, that would seem like a funny thing. Yeah. We do have some people reaching out saying, oh yeah, I noticed that you have an API. Can I build an app to use your API? Or like, yes, you can. Or, you know, if there's functionality you want, why don't you hack it yourself? You know, like we have, we have the front end available for you to do that if you want. Right. So speaking of maybe, you know, people wanting to use your API, then do you have really good public documentation on that? Um, I wouldn't say it's really good, but it is publicly documented. Um, and it's probably 95% correct. <laughs> right. Better than most. It's, it's sometimes hard to keep up with it in that, like, you know, we're we're developing the application so quickly that sometimes it's hard to keep the, the documentation in line. Yeah. The docs are always quick to drift pretty uh, out of sync. Yeah, exactly. So going back maybe to your tech stack, right? We have Python on the back end, Django, Django REST framework, React on the front end using Webpack to, uh, Webpack to bundle everything. What about the rest of your tech stack? Like, are you using Docker in development or production? What about Nginx, like Celery, Redis? What about your database? Uh, is that enough work? Yeah, there's so many other things. Yeah, totally. About. I know, yeah, the stack just goes so deep, right? It's turtles all the way down. So we run our stack on top of Linux. Uh, as as a host, we use DigitalOcean. Uh, we switched over to them relatively recently and are super happy with the um, the, the quality of the services. Like uh, I've, I've used all the major clouds, um, you know, AWS, Google, Azure, DigitalOcean, and DigitalOcean is the one I like best. Which is interesting because it it, it, it doesn't seem to compete on features, but they really really do win on usability in every case. Um, it, and it does everything that we needed to do. So it's um, been a big win for us by switching to DigitalOcean. So we, we use um, Linux on DigitalOcean. We're, right now we're running Ubuntu 18.04 in production. Uh, we'll probably upgrade to 20.04 within a few months once we kind of give it some time to bake and uh, make sure that any issues get worked out. That's kind of like the foundation and you know everything we do is, is built on Linux, which um, is great because it works so well with open source and all the tooling that we use. Um, in, in terms of our database, our main database is PostgreSQL, and um, I absolutely love that database. Again, like this is like why use this one versus MySQL or you know any of the others that are out there. And it, it comes down to like, well, it's the one that I know how to use really well, and I've never had a problem with it. So it's an obvious answer to use it. You know, um, it seems like every time I've wanted to do something a little bit weird with the database, it's like, oh, there's there's a way to do that, and if there's not, there's an extension for it, right? Um, so it's really nice to have that community and, you know, just, just generally high quality database that's always improving. Uh, we have Redis as well. So we use a Redis instance for caching and for our backend queue. So you mentioned Celery a moment ago and yeah, we absolutely use Celery. That's that's the Python module that we use for any sort of like background task that we want to run. And the, you know, the queue, uh, the I guess backend provider for the queue is Redis. It's one of our Redis databases. Okay. So when it comes to putting things onto that Celery queue, like what type of work goes on there? Um, anything that needs to happen periodically or anything that um, is slow enough that we want it to run in the background. Um, so one of the one of the things that we do for people's accounts is we do these, uh, we call them cache notifications. And so we essentially monitor our users' accounts and check for new deposits or dividends coming into their brokerage accounts. And when we see it, we um, kind of like log the event and we fire off an email to the user and say, hey, you know, you got paid. You just got dividends from, you know, whatever ETF you might be holding. Or, hey, your monthly contribution just arrived in, in your 401k. 
right? And so you get that in your email and it's a prompt to come into the application and then allocate your cash. And so that's something that happens in the background. We run it every day for every account and um, that happens in the background, you know, like uh, there's, there's no user event that triggers it. So it just kind of needs to be um, put on a queue and then we have a worker that kind of chews through the tasks over the course of the day. Right. So in that case, that's uh, Celery's periodic worker, right? The beep server? The Celery beep. That's right. So uh, do you happen to run the beep server as like embedded into a worker or do you run it as a, like a separate thing on its own? Uh, so we run all of it on one box right now. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, developed in a way such that it's easy for us to like chunk it and split it if we need to. But right now we have um, a reasonably sized box on DigitalOcean that runs our um, application server. So like it's actually running Django um, and it runs the Celery Worker and it runs Celery Beat. Okay, so you have three different processes then running all on that one server? Yes. Okay, what, what's, what's the specs of that server if you don't mind sharing? Uh, that is a, it has six virtual CPUs at DigitalOcean. Um, so it's, you know, relatively beefy as far as, you know, VPSs go. Uh, but um, it's actually pretty reasonably priced and um, it works like we, you know, we monitor the load on the server and it's, um, you know, we never get above like say 15 or 20% load. Right. And that uh, six vCPU box, is that like part of their general plan or is it one of those like memory or CPU optimized ones? Uh, that's a, that's a general instance. Yeah. There's nothing too special about it. And so that's, you know, we, we run like our application code on the server. Um, our databases are, are obviously separate, right? So we use, um, uh, what do they call it? They're, they're, yeah, managed Postgres. It, managed Postgres, is that what they call it? Yeah, I was, I was getting confused with um, Amazon's RDS. But yeah, it's, it's their their managed Postgres thing, and that's been wonderful. Like, they they take care of all the hard stuff for us. Originally, um, listen, before we moved to DigitalOcean, we had, like, uh, we rented one um, really beefy, dedicated server over at, uh, was that OVH? Yep. And that was great because we got, like, a ridiculously powerful box for not very much money. Um, but it also meant that we had to do all the database management and stuff ourselves and things like, um, you know, like you want to encrypt your data at rest. Well, now you have to do that yourself and you got to manage the keys for that and you got to blah, blah, blah. Right. So when you're, when you're using a managed service, um, like DigitalOcean provides, it's all, you know, encrypted at rest by default. And that sort of like takes a lot of the complexity out of managing the database for you. And, you know, there have been times when we've actually needed to scale the database since moving to DigitalOcean and that's just a click of a button. Yeah, no, I'm a huge fan of using a managed database when you can. And, you know, even if you don't and you have to run your own, absolutely, totally worth it to put it on a separate server than your main web server. Only because it's like, I mean, it sounds like you're just running one server. Like, are, are, are things like internally load balanced on that one server or no? Yes. Yeah. So on that one server, like, yes, we have the um, the Django process, right? But it's, a, it's actually like a bunch of Django processes. So we so uh, the way the way we chunk this up is that we run a bunch of different Python processes behind GUnicorn. So um, Python has this uh, this thing called the global interpreter lock, and that means that in a given Python process, you can't use more than one um, CPU's worth of uh, processing power at a given time. Um, which for most applications, not too big of a deal. But if you want your app to be running across lots of different CPUs and making sure you're using all of them, then you need to have multiple processes. So we have um, several Python processes running behind GUnicorn, which itself is behind Nginx. And then each of those processes also has uh, a few different uh, Python threads inside of it to give us a little concurrency advantage. Interesting. So just for clarification here, do you have things set up to where you have like 
multiple nginx upstreams that are proxying to like two independent like unicorn masters or no like basically what i'm getting at is like can you do zero downtime deploys even while only having one server no um our downtimes are typically on the order of five seconds when we we do a deploy so that's good enough in my opinion and we tend to we time our deploys so that they don't happen during the working day like when markets are open um so you know, I I have run services like this before at other companies where, you know, you do the zero downtime deploys and you have multiple boxes and so on. And um, that's great, except that it also introduces a lot of operational complexity to uh, managing deploys and keeping your services running. Um, so it's a bit of a trade-off, right? And at our point, um, we basically decided that, you know what, we don't need to be available 100% of the time, especially when markets are not open. So... Um, when we do a deploy, it does give us a very small amount of downtime, but it's small enough that uh, I don't think anybody has ever even noticed it. Yeah. And that's a really interesting thing to bring up, right? Like you are in a very, I guess you can say like advantageous position in that the market operates between certain hours, right? What does it close? Like 4.30 PM Eastern time, like whatever, something like that or four, who cares? It, it, you know, you have that window to do that. Yeah, exactly. Like there, there are many hours in the day when um, you can't actually place trades through our application. Now people will still use it in the off hours and sometimes they still want to check up on their account and see what trades maybe they should make tomorrow. Um, so we do try to, you know, stay online as much as we can. Uh, but again, like, you know, our, even our brokerage partners have uh, daily downtime with their APIs. Um, like one of them goes down for three hours every morning. And that's just the the way it is. Like they're that's how they manage their services, and it's okay as far as they're concerned to be down for a few hours. So we just kind of handle that, right? But let me ask you this: Let's say you happen to be developing a different project where you know there isn't like that hour of or multiple hours of opportunities to deploy. Would you still go at that strategy of having the one server with a couple of seconds of downtime? Uh, I think yeah, I think it depends on the use case. So. Um, if the use case is like absolutely critical, it's got to be up 24-7, um, then yeah, you would you'd want to go for like a high availability setup where you have multiple servers and could do zero downtime deploys and so on. But it, it's, I, I honestly would look at like the impact of like, well, what, what happens when there's downtime? Is this an application where people lose money or, you know, or there's like some serious outcome if uh, we're down for a few seconds or... Is this something where like it's a minor inconvenience and people say, okay, you know, like I didn't need to do it right now. I'll come back in five minutes. Right. And so understanding the different severity levels is important for choosing that. Um, I personally don't like choosing high availability too early because um, you can end up with a very, very expensive setup. And uh, not just in terms of like your, your um, hosting bills for having, you know, redundant servers and so on. But just in terms of like the the operational overhead of managing that. So now when you do a deploy, instead of just running your deploy script on one box, you have to run it on multiple boxes or you have to, um, you know, build, you need to have like a separate box, which is your build box and you build everything there. And then you have a process for pushing all of that code to the services and making sure that they get restarted in the correct order such that there's no downtime. And so like that makes deploys take exponentially longer to happen it makes them more likely to fail when you're you know if you're trying to deploy to 10 boxes instead of one you're more likely to fail you know like something's going to go wrong it's not that it always goes wrong but that you know just the odds of something going wrong go up and um, it makes the whole process more painful so I, I like to weigh that with you know how bad would it be if somebody you know gets a you know come back later message right yeah no those are all great points and and honestly right it's like 
getting the code onto the server, multiple servers, really isn't too, too bad. It's it's controlling that load balancer, right? Making sure only the live ones actually serve traffic, like doing a rolling restart. And like you say, if you have 50 servers that and you want to have like, you know, 15 up at a time or whatever, uh, yeah, really long time to get fully deployed, really super complicated. And also really super complicated at the application level too, right? It's like suddenly you need to code your app so that it works with you know, potentially two different versions of your database if you happen to be running a database migration, you know, as part of uh, one of your updates. Exactly. And that, and that's a really good point. Like handling database migrations in, uh, you know, a redundant or highly available setup is, it's a whole other can of worms. Yeah. So I'm actually really kind of excited to hear that, you know, you're just throwing this up on, what is that six C- CPU core box cost, like $40 a month or something like that? Uh, I'm trying to think it's, it might be 80 I'm maybe 60. I'm not sure exactly. It's because it's so, it's so small that it doesn't even matter. Right. It's, it's not a super expensive thing. Um, You know, I, I have a story from one of my, uh, one of the companies I used to work for in the past where we decided to do like a high availability thing from day one for an app that like probably didn't need it. Um, You know, it's like, it's, this was an app, which was like sort of a business facing app. And it was something where it was like pulling stats that were aggregated from a few days ago. So like, a few minutes difference isn't going to change your stats. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, we decided let's go like, let's be nuclear bomb proof. Let's have this thing in multiple regions, multiple availability zones. Um, we're going to have multiple boxes in each availability zone in case, you know, one fails, the load balancer will still handle it. And we, we don't just want that on our front end servers. We also want that on our database servers. And we kind of discovered the hard way that, um, uh, data egress costs on AWS will charge you when you move between availability zones. So we had, you know, um, essentially like replicas of these databases in each availability zone, and we had them synchronizing with each other. And the queue was pushing so much, so many jobs. Like, I mean, the, it was a, we had a Redis queue and a Postgres database, similar, very similar to our current setup. And so every job that you'd put on the queue would have to get pushed around to all other regions. And that was counting as data egress between these regions. And the volume that was going through that queue was absolutely monstrous. It was on the order of millions of tasks a day. So we, we, we got a bill from AWS for like $18,000 in one month, which was, you know, 20x what our typical server costs were, right? <laughs> and that's what we, we very quickly realized, like, this is this is, makes no sense at all for this setup, you know? And it's not like... It's not like in that case, it's not like there was even any any problem if the app was down for a few minutes, you know? Yep, totally. And I mean, in your case now, you have that like, let's call it $60 a month, right? For that single box that you have. And then you have your managed database. Like, uh, would you mind sharing the specs on that one? Uh, yeah, the managed database is, uh, I think it's a four CPU um, managed Postgres server, uh, if I recall correctly. Okay. Yeah. I'm not an expert on their prices offhand, but again, isn't that one also like in the 60-ish dollars a month neighborhood or no? Yeah, it is. Um, it's a little more than that because um, that one we have um, a re- we sort of like have, um, it, it's redundant. So like there's the, the front end one, there's like the main Postgres one, and that is streaming to a replica that's behind it. So if the first one ever fails, it, the other one will take over. Um, and then we also have a read replica of that, which we use for all of our analytics and like business metrics and stuff. We don't want them hitting our live production database. So instead they hit a read replica of that. Um, and so that combined makes the cost roughly like triple what it would otherwise be. Right. So let's call it like 200 for the database, like 60 for the web server. Do you have a, maybe like a load balancer in front of the web server just for like SSL and maybe being able to, you know, you mentioned maybe upgrading to Ubuntu 20.04 later on. 
kind of nice to be able to just spin up a new box, point a load balancer to that, retire the old one with no DNS updates. Um, we don't. Uh, we, we thought about doing that, but um, we just, you know, we're like, well, one box is fine for now. And if we do want a load balancer, we can do that relatively easily. Um, so, the, I mean, the box itself has Nginx as a load balancer on it, and it has Gunicorn routing those requests to different um, Django processes. So it, it kind of works for what it is at this point. Yeah. Yeah. With the load balancer, even like it almost, it's kind of nice just to run it with one server, just to have the ability to swap your actual web servers whenever you need. That's the value really of having your database on a different server. That is true. But uh, yeah, it's not set up to do that right now. I mean, even even like the um, HTTPS certs, the SSL certs, right? Like that's all in the same box. And to some extent it's convenient because Let's Encrypt just like we have, you know, that running on there in a cron job every couple of days, right? And that takes care of it for us. Uh, but, you know, you're right, like the load balancers could also do that job for us if we wanted them to. Yeah. No, I, I love it. One server set up, one database, well, a couple of replicas, but overall very non-crazy infrastructure set up. But on that note, though, do you do any type of automation to keep tabs on maybe some DigitalOcean resources that you create using Terraform, or do you use Ansible for configuration management? Uh, we do. We use Ansible for uh, for configuration management, at least when we, we use that when we are like setting up a box for the first time. Um, we don't use Ansible on like an ongoing deploy basis. We actually have like a really simple deploy script that just runs for us. We probably could do it in Ansible, but the deploy script is even easier for us at this point. Uh, but yeah, we, we have an Ansible script that's, um, you need to update it every now and then when, you know, when dependencies change or when something kind of fundamentally changes about the app. Uh, but for the most part, um, it's yeah, just something we run when there's a brand new box that we need to provision. And that's a pretty rare occurrence. Right. So are, are you happy overall using Ansible to deal with that configuration? Oh, totally. I love Ansible. I'm a huge fan of it. Uh, you know, at a previous company, we used it for, um, for all of our deploys as well. We, we actually built a tool on top of Ansible that sort of like made Ansible configuration files a little more composable. So we had like a number of different um, uh, server types. And instead of having a separate Ansible file for each, we sort of built a system that allowed us to generate the Ansible files based on the functional requirements of the box. Anyway, it, nice. it's, it's amazing. I, I really like Ansible, how, especially how you, know, you don't need to install anything on the target box. Like As long as SSH is there, you can just deploy to it. It's, it's really so, so clean and simple. Yeah, no, I'm a huge fan of Ansible. I've been using it for, I don't even know at this point, five, six, seven years, something like that. But also very cool that it's written in Python and it uses you know Jinja as a templating language and YAML. So it's kind of like if you're already working with Django and Python, it's one of those things where you can kind of just look at it and you're like, yeah, I sort of kind of understand this without even like really knowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's maybe uh, rewind just real quick here about your tech stack. Uh, I don't think you answered this one yet, but are you using Docker in development or production? No, we're not. Um, I, I quite like Docker. It's just not something that um, I, I'm not that familiar with it. Uh, you know, I've used it before, um, but I don't see an obvious use case for it in our scenario. Right. Yeah. In this podcast, I try not to sort of give unsolicited advice, but I guess one of the cool things about Docker is, you know, you mentioned you have a couple of different developers. Docker could make it to where all of those developers can just clone your project, run like a, a Docker compose up type of command. And then, you know, their whole dev environment is good to go. And then it's sort of like you can do a similar thing in production as well. That That's true. And that that's a really good point. Like that's, um, honestly, that is a bit of a pain point for us. So whenever a new developer comes on, getting them set up with their developer environment is a bit of a painful process. And I mean, we're still working on nailing down the exact documentation for that. 
Um, I mean, we do we do have an Ansible file which does most of the work for you, but only if you're using Ubuntu Linux, you know. <laughs> and, and so, you know, even me personally, I I use Linux on my desktop, but it's not Ubuntu. I use Arch Linux, and um, so that script doesn't work for me in this particular instance. Man, isn't that a tease? You wrote all those all those Ansible roles and playbooks and only Ubuntu only, but you're so close, but not quite. Exactly. But that's okay. And, you know, there are some pluses. Like if we're looking for silver linings here of not using Docker, which, um, you know, it, it would probably be better if we did. But at the moment, we, we don't. A silver lining, in my opinion, would be that by not using Docker and not making it too easy for developers to set up their environment, they have to dive in and learn a bit more about the environment before it runs. So it forces them to think about all the different components they need. They have to know that we use Postgres as a database. They have to know how it's set up. Um, same thing with Redis. They have to know about Nginx and how we use it to route requests into Django. Um, they have to know how Django connects into these individual databases by setting up their configuration file to point to these databases, right? So it, it like kind of requires you to be aware of how the whole thing functions at some basic level. So you know, yes, it would be nice to be able to push a button and spin things up, but it's also kind of like it forces them to jump into the deep end to learn to swim. And um, it is painful. It takes a few hours to get a new developer set up. But once they're set up, they're a little more prepared to use it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, in some case, almost, it's almost like setting up your development environment, right? Like even getting set up with Python and maybe like a virtual environment, like managing multiple processes. It's almost sort of like a, like a rite of passage as a developer, right? It's like, it's a really good idea to go through that at least a couple of times before you try to automate it from like, you know, ground zero, like the first time you ever do it. Exactly. And, and you know, I hadn't actually thought of this before. Like I, for a while I've been like mulling over, bah, you know, we need an easier way of doing a development environment setup. But um, when I think about it, it actually kind of like aligns well with, um, you know, how, how I view any sort of software service. So like I mentioned, I, I use Arch Linux. Um, Arch Linux is kind of similar in, 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 I'm trying to like compare my operating system to how our development environment doesn't have good documentation. Um, Arch Linux does have really good documentation, uh, but it also makes you kind of like set up your system almost from scratch when you, when you install it for the first time, right? Like, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Arch or not, but they have like a really good wiki that explains how to install Arch Linux. And when you install it, you start with, um, like a live USB you plug it in, you do the, and you start the install process, but it's not like, it's not like Ubuntu where it boots you to a desktop and you can double click the install file. It's like you go to a shell and you have to, um, uh, ch root yourself. In, okay, so first you have to set up your partitions and then you have to like, um, ch root yourself onto the partition and then run like a, you know, install code onto it. And, and it, it doesn't even come with a graphical interface unless you explicitly install that. Right. And so, it's it, the same thing where it forces you to think about all the components of the system as you're setting it up and it makes you more prepared to deal with any issues that you might come across. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always good to experience that stuff at least once or a couple times. Yeah, exactly. Maybe once you're familiar, then you could automate it. But um, I've, I've personally found it like very enlightening to um, install Arch Linux for the first time way, way back in the day when I started. Yeah. No, it is an interesting topic though, because even like when it comes to using Ansible, right? It's like you probably just didn't start with Ansible. Maybe you, you, you went into the box and you executed commands from to some tutorial, you know, a whole bunch of times. Then maybe you documented those steps. Maybe you made like a shell script out of that at some point. And then it's like, well, you know, now I understand the pain points. Now I understand why, why people actually use Ansible. 
Is that like what happened for you or no? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So let's maybe uh, rewind back to your app here because I don't want to go too off topic here, even though I love talking about this stuff. But um, Yeah, sure. Uh, so what does your deploy process look like? So how does code get from one of your dev boxes up into production? So we use Git for our, uh, you know, source control, which, uh, you know, everybody does. It's kind of obvious these days, I guess. Um, but we have uh, branches that are that are specific for production and, you know, as well as everything else that's being built. So there's like feature branches and then those branches get merged all back into um, uh, either, you know, a master branch where it's all grouped together and then we branch off to production. Or, or we um, sometimes if we're doing like, say, a hot fix to production, we'll just, you know, branch off production, quickly check that in and then push it. So when we push our code to the production branch, it doesn't get deployed automatically. And I know that's that's like somewhat of a popular thing these days, especially when it comes to front end stuff like static web pages and something. Well, you can set it up with Netlify or whatever to um, whenever you see a deploy to a particular branch, you can just deploy the latest code. And that's cool. Um, and I think that works well for front end stuff. Um, but in our case, it doesn't like, I, I'm not sure it works really that well for backend stuff because it's not just a code of, it's not just a problem of pushing your code to the box. It's also, you know, running the deploy process, which can include database migrations and stuff that you don't necessarily want to automate. So the way we do it is, um, once that code is pushed, we get a notification that it's there. Um, often there's a pull request involved in order to get it brought into the production branch anyway. And then we want to do a deploy, a deploy, we basically SSH into the deploy box and run the deploy script. And the deploy script is pretty simple. It has like a few configuration options to allow you to pick um, different branches if you want to deploy to something other than production. Uh, but essentially it just builds, uh, it does like static builds at the front ends, um, which, um, so when I say front ends, plural, there's like the app front end, and then there's like our static landing pages um, for the front end. So um, it builds those. And um, once it's done building those, then it looks at uh, the Python dependencies and updates any dependencies that have changed. Uh, then it goes and um, attempts a database migration, and then it restarts the services. And of course, there's a, you know a, a check before it it finally <laughs> does that restart at the end. That's really like you know the the last moment to bail out if you decide something's wrong with the deploy. Right. So for a second there, when you said like you SSH into the deploy box. I almost thought maybe there was like another box in between that and the production box, but now it sounds like that deploy box is your actual production box. Sorry, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. The deploy box is is the the main box, and I I probably just said that as a force of habit because in um, you know previous setups like we actually had a separate deploy box, and that's that's handy when you're you know doing a uh, you know a highly available thing where you have lots of boxes you want to deploy to. But in this case, it's really just the one box that's running our application code, so it makes deploying a breeze. Um, from start to finish, like a deploy takes probably five minutes. Um, and the actual like restarting of services is on the order of like five to 10 seconds. Yeah, that's not too bad at all. Now let's rewind a bit back to your deploy process a little bit more. Uh, how do you deal with secret management? So API keys, email credentials, things like that. Um, so we use a, um, what do you call it? A Python module that's meant for managing secrets. I think it's called like secrets.py or something like that. Um, anyway, it's basically a, um, a little module that allows you to have a definitions file to say, like to define the secrets that you want, um, that need to be provided. And then there's a separate file, which wouldn't get checked into your code, which would contain those actual secrets. 
Um, so it's basically a, um, a single Python file which we code our secrets in and we manually put that on boxes when, they, um, when we deploy to them. Interesting. So actually going back to what you said before about, you know, you kind of deploy just by SSHing into the box. Does that mean it's really only you deploying or can any developer on your team actually go through and get basically root access on your server? Uh, it's only developers that have been approved to do it. Um, and that would be like people who are um, actual like backend developers, right? So our front-end developers don't have any access to that. Um, it's a separate service and, uh, you know, I don't even think they have keys on the box or anything. It's, you know, it's whoever needs it and has been trained to use the box appropriately. Right. Or maybe I was a bit hasty about root access because, you know, it's not necessarily root. Yeah, and it's not it's not root access. No, it's um, it's like a deploy environment access. Right. So basically the SSHN is like a deploy user and limited rights to maybe just mess around with Nginx and GUnicorn or whatever. That's right. Yeah. That's not too bad. And I mean, I, I kind of like the idea at least of it's not really tied into one person, right? That bus factor isn't there. Just in case for listeners out there, the bus factor is if you get hit by a bus, suddenly if nothing works because you're the only person capable of doing it, you're going to be in some real trouble. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's something that we're still kind of struggling with. So um, I'm still the one running all the operations like personally. Um, we, you know, we do have developers who can do it and have done it, but um, the vast majority of things are like they kind of fall under my domain. And um, I'm, I'm actually on paternity leave right now. I just had a kid a couple of weeks ago. And uh, this has caused us to like kind of reevaluate, like maybe we need to put a lot more effort into making sure that um, I'm not the only person who can do things. And, you know, there, there are some contingency plans in place and stuff already, but um, it's clearly something we need to do more of. You know, there's only four of us working on this full time. So um, we just need to make sure that we're a little more redundant than that. Right. First off, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and secondly, uh, yeah, I mean, Totally cool idea, right? It's like instead of spending all of that time trying to do that from the get-go, you've waited until you're already quite successful, multiple employees, like this business is not going to go away tomorrow. Like now is the time to start doing that type of automation, right? Exactly. Um, I kind of like my whole philosophy with starting a business is that you should never do anything until you need to do it. Now, that's not absolutely true. Um, there are definitely exceptions. So like from a security perspective, right? Like you want to have good security from day one. That's not something you want to get hacked to learn, you know? But the, the vast majority of things um, I think you shouldn't do until you have a clear reason to do them. Because if you wanted to, like if you said, I'm going to build a high availability setup from day one and we're going to make sure that not only um, is our servers redundant, but our personnel are redundant and blah, 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 right? You end up with this like monstrously complex thing from day one, which is really expensive to run. And I think it reduces your chances of ever building something useful because you're spending too much time just keeping the machine running as opposed to moving forward. Sure. I mean, you can honestly, and like, I'm not exaggerating here because I've seen it firsthand. Like you can end up like spending literally six, eight, 12 months just trying to get like the perfect infrastructure before you even deploy your app. When really you could have just really deploy that on one server, two second downtime, you know, and get that going in like a couple of weeks at, at the most. Absolutely. Um, I, I feel like, you know, you should never let uh, good be the enemy of perfect or, or does it go the other way around? Perfect be the enemy of good. Whatever it is, um, you know, striving for perfection is um, a folly in most cases, I think. Uh, there is such a thing as good enough. And it's just a matter of like intelligently choosing what is good enough so that you can realistically get something done, you know? Yeah. Now, speaking of things like good enough and 
you know, just making sure it works. You know, when things don't work, uh, how do you get uh, like notifications sent to you for errors? Like, do you have like, what do you have set up for logging metrics and, and things like that? Yeah, so we uh, log just about everything. We probably log almost too much. Um, like our logs here are <laughs> rather huge. Um, we have um, error notifications coming. So whenever a production server hits an error, uh, especially like a user facing error coming from an API request, um, I get emailed about that. Um, some days it's overwhelming. Like for example, if one of our partner's APIs goes down, then like my email blows up. Uh, but that's also a very strong signal that we need to check on something, you know? Kind of scary, right? <laughs> you wake up and there's like 1,142 emails. Yeah, I, and that that happens occasionally. And it, it is scary when it happens, but usually it's a pretty minor thing. Like usually it's just like, oh yeah, the brokerage is down for maintenance. I mean, you know, that sucks. It, it causes downtime for those users on our app because we can't, uh, you know, access their account information to serve the things they need. But you know, there, there are some things that are out of our control and we just kind of have to um, realize that and mitigate as best we can. Right. Now, speaking of things like sort of out of your control, like, you know, even things like payment gateways, right? Uh, are you using something like Stripe to handle payments for those pro plans? We are. Yeah. So Stripe is our subscription manager um, and, it, you know, it does the payments and stuff as well when payments are required. Um, it's actually interesting because like we we started this with the the, the whole vision of, yes, this is going to be like a B2C company. Um, users will pay for their software subscriptions and that's the only way we're ever going to do it. You know, um, probably about a year into running this in production, uh, one of the brokerages that we work with came to us and said, this is really interesting. Like you guys have more users than anybody else on our, our app platform. And they seem to be liking it a lot. And we're seeing like really interesting changes in behavior when people start using your application, like they become more engaged and they're better customers. That's interesting, right? And when this brokerage told us that, um, they, they basically came to us and said, well, you know, not only do we see this, but we want to figure out a way to like encourage more people to do this. And so we um, essentially worked out a deal with this brokerage where um, they are now paying for uh, customer subscriptions to uh, Passive. And in these cases, like, you know, yeah, we're getting paid for users who use it, but it's not being done through Stripe, but Stripe still has to manage the subscriptions because that's how our entire subscription system is set up, you know? So it's it's a little tricky to make it work, but um, it's kind of like a fun happenstance. So not, you know, the assumption that we made originally that users will pay us directly is actually not true. Yeah, that's something you definitely don't think about on day one. So when it comes to implementing all that with Stripe, are you using any of their new API endpoints? like payment intents for the SCA stuff or no? I uh, don't think so. Um, it's, it's all pretty vanilla. So we we actually don't talk to Stripe directly. What we do is, uh, you know, it is direct in some sense, but we, we have like a, a module called DJ Stripe that is sort of like our Stripe wrapper, I guess you would call it. So it's, it's a really cool um, Django app. And uh, it basically creates Django database models that map to your um, Stripe models, which would be on the Stripe side of things. And it has a webhook endpoint that we then have hooked up to Stripe. So when anything happens in Stripe, it pings the webhook and DJ Stripe recognizes the event, logs in their database, creates the appropriate data objects and so on. And so, um, you know, for most things, we don't even need to query Stripe directly because Stripe has already kind of told us through a webhook that something has happened. And now it's just like, cached in our database and we know this is the state of the account. Right. So if someone goes to their account profile for billing or whatever to check out their invoices, you'll they'll get that from your local database, not API calls. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, that's super handy, right? Because you don't want someone to load up like a billing page and before you know it, you're making four API endpoints calls that take like three seconds, right? That's right, yeah. Which is interesting because like that's actually how like the rest of our app works. Um, you know, we don't, we don't, we try not to like store user information unless we actually need to, especially when it comes to their brokerage account. Um, and, you know, the reason is twofold. One is privacy, but two is also like we're dealing with real time markets here and trying to help people make trades in their live brokerage account. So we don't want to be using old account information to do these calculations. So when somebody loads their passive dashboard, we, we do have to make these API requests to the brokerage and it is slow. It takes on the order of like, you know, five to 10 seconds to load all the account information and process it into a series of trades and display it, um, which it's kind of lame that it, it uh, takes that long, but it's just kind of the nature of the beast that we're not caching all the data locally. We are, you know, reading it live right from the horse's mouth. Right. But when it comes to like, you know, the, that five plus seconds, at that point, the skeleton of the app is loaded. You're making like Ajax calls with React or whatever to the back end. Like it's getting loaded asynchronously, right? It is. Yeah. So the app is loaded and uh, we, I guess like caching does happen but it's client side caching so the app will show you like the state of your account as of the last time that you logged in when you when you log in and then it kind of like it hits the api and you can see the spinners going so you know something is happening but um you know it's not like you have an empty app until it loads it just shows you the old data until it's done loading so switching gears a little bit maybe let's talk a little bit about disaster recovery or unexpected events uh, you mentioned you have basically three versions of your database uh, running, but do you do active backups as well or no? Um, active backups, meaning like backups while it's live or? Um, or just any form of backup. Like do you do a SQL dump or do you do like point in time backups? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we do. Um, so we periodically update, like backup our database, but then we also have like, you know, the, the streaming replicas. So we, and we have two of those, right? One of them is like the live replica, which will be automatically switched over by um, DigitalOcean if the first one fails. Uh, but then there's also the read replica that we use for everything else. And then there's, you know, the, the periodic dumps that we take after the fact. Right. And those periodic dumps are kind of just like, that's not minutes from, from DigitalOcean. You just kind of do that for your own sanity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I prefer to manage those. Um, like, you know, DigitalOcean has, has a way of like, you know, making those automatic, but they, they charge something what is it, like additional 20% on top of your bill just for running periodic dumps or something anyway it never really seemed worthwhile to me so uh, we just have a cron job that does that right is that like a real cron job or is that a, a salary periodic task that's an actual cron job yeah okay uh, i guess speaking of cron jobs do you have a couple of those running as well on your server like if so what do they do yeah there's the database dump and there is the um let's encrypt ssl update and those those are it i think okay yeah not too bad yeah, I try. We try to keep it clean, right? Like, you know, if you put too much stuff in cron, and then you have some stuff running in in Celery Beat, right? Like, it's kind of hard to manage both. So we try to keep it like a very strict separation. Yeah, for sure. Now, what about things like user generated files being backed up? I don't know if this really applies to your app, but I know what some trading platforms like you need to upload your driver's license and maybe even like you know social security card. Do you need to handle anything like that or no? No, we don't. And that's, it's great from a privacy perspective and uh, also from like a regulatory perspective. Um, we don't really need to handle anything like in terms of like personally identifiable information. Um, there's not really much of that that we have. Like there's, um, we have users email, we have the name or whatever name they're willing to give us. Like we don't actually verify that people give us their real names because it doesn't really matter. You know, um, we're not holding their money. 
we are an app that connects to their brokerage account and the brokerage is the one that's handling all of that regulatory compliance and so on. So as far as we're concerned, um, like we just need a way of contacting you via email and uh, the rest of it, you can kind of do as you please. So we don't, we don't, yeah, we don't need driver's licenses or anything like that. Right. Yeah. That is very nice to know, right? It's like having to store all of that is probably like the PCI equivalent of handling, you know, credit cards or whatever, but for personal data, wouldn't want to have to mess with that. Yeah, exactly. It, it makes like GDPR compliance easier as well, right? Like not having to handle all that. I, I personally prefer like, you know, <laughs> like less data, the better. Um, I know like a lot of companies out there might look at data as, as like a, the new oil, you know, like the more data you have, the better. But I think we're, we're probably like switching to an era where data becomes a liability in a lot of cases. Yeah, absolutely. Now, swinging back to like unexpected events and things like that, I mean, do you have things set up at the server level to where like if for whatever reason that server kicked over and you reboot it and it comes back on, will your whole app come up on its own? Yes. Have you ever had to do that or beyond like just testing? Mm, let me think here. Um, no, I don't think we've ever had to do that. Um, it's a nice problem not to have. Yeah, you know, actually with, with a previous, like uh, on, our, on our old host at, um, at OVH, uh, there were one or two times when we had to reboot the server for like a, a critical software patch or something like that. Um, and we did that and it, it just worked fine, right? So um, we use we use Supervisor D to manage all of our Python processes, um, which is another great Python <laughs> package um, that has sort of like automatic um, restarts and like start on boot stuff built into it, which is really convenient. Interesting. So what made you choose that one over using system D? Uh, legacy. Honestly, like it's, it's, I, I feel like these are really boring answers because it seems like I'm giving you the same answer every time. It's like, that's what I know how to use and I like using it. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it kind of comes down to like, yes, it was what, what we, what I know and I've used for about 10 years now. Um, but also back then, I don't think system D was really a thing. Um, I, I mean, like it was, it was a project you could get, but at least as far as like the, the um, like Ubuntu is what we were running in production at an old company. And, uh, you know, I was using Arch Linux on my desktop. Um, system D wasn't a part of it. So there was no option to just create, um, you know, a, a system D control file to, to do that. Yeah, I think it's only been, I don't know how many years, but a couple of years before it was available in Ubuntu LTS. What was it? 1604, I think, was the first release that had it. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not exactly sure if that's the one, but it was roughly around then that I, it really kind of just started appearing everywhere. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I actually am a big fan of System D. Um, I know it's probably like a taboo thing to say, but um, whenever I use it, I find it makes my life easier. So, um, you know, I, I use it when I have the opportunity to. And I think that if I had to sit down and think about it right now, I probably wouldn't pick Supervisor D anymore. I'd probably pick System D just because I'd prefer something that's like baked into the system by default. You know, I'd rather roll with something that's a little more low level than, um, uh, you know, something like Supervisor D. But that said, Supervisor D works really, really well. I, you know, I haven't had any complaints about it. Yeah. Can't really uh, knock too hard on a tool that actually works for you, right? So Yeah, exactly. Now, going back to unexpected events and things like that, uh, do you have any DigitalOcean alarms or alerts set up, like those CPU and memory ones where it's like, oh, by the way, you know, your server's at 80% CPU for 10 minutes and then you get emailed? Uh, I think we do. And the reason I say we think is that like, I, I remember setting this stuff up, but I've never had an email about it. So um, 
I feel like we've just kind of like under provisioned our servers enough so that like, um, we, you know, they're not running anywhere near the load that would trigger these alarms, which is a good thing. But yeah, that's actually probably something I should test. That's actually a very good point. Yeah, that's always funny, right? And it like kind of goes back to other tools that you might possibly use. Like, I guess I'll ask that first. Like, do you use anything to monitor uh, the site itself to make sure it's up? Like hitting some like health check endpoints every five minutes for like, a, you know, a status code 200. Um, yes. Yeah. Like, so we have some custom stuff to do that. And we're actually planning on... Um, uh, using another service instead. I'm trying to remember what is it is. Pingdom. Yeah. Pingdom is the one that, that I generally like. Um, we're actually planning on starting to use that soon. Uh, but for now we have like sort of custom scripts that run on our own boxes that monitor the uptime and let us know if anything's going wrong. Right. But no, I was kind of laughing a little bit before because yeah, you set these alarms and things like that up and like, they just don't happen for six months. And then you kind of just wonder like, like what the heck is going on? Like, is the monitoring not working or is my service actually somehow up this whole entire time, which is amazing. Like, yeah, you kind of, it's like you want the error to happen, but at the same time you don't. Yeah. Well, you, you need monitoring for your monitoring, right? How do you know your monitoring is working if you're not monitoring with something else? So, uh, yeah, you kind of get into like a tricky problem there. An infinite loop of uh, monitoring recursion. So what would you say are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this app? I feel like I learned a lot of the most important lessons in projects before this, and I was able to to avoid most of the pitfalls on this one. I feel like it's like it's solidified a lot of the things that I suspected and came to know of, and it, a lot of it boils down to like use the tools that you know, like the the best tools are the ones you know how to use, so use them unless you have a compelling reason not to. If something's not broken, don't fix it. Uh, I mean, like these seem like maybe obvious things and you know rather rather trite, but um, it's totally true. You know, the more you mess around with something, the more likely you are to break it. And when you're building a new application and you're a small team and you're trying to, um, kind of keep up with all the new feature requests and so on, every time you touch something, it creates this, um, sort of like testing requirement where you have to go back and then make sure that everything still works. Right. And automated tests can help to some extent, but, um, there's usually something you're missing along the way. So, you know, if it's not broke, don't don't try to mess with it. Yeah, no, I think that really is great advice. Like you look back and think like, oh, well, that's so obvious. But sometimes like some of the best advice is that. And like you just really need to follow it instead of just assuming that, oh, well, you know, this thing is like too obvious to be useful or something. That's right. Now, on the other hand, I guess there's like another way you could look at that of like, if it's not broke, don't don't fix it, right? Well, okay, but if it's not broke for so long, um, how do you know how to fix it if it does break, you know? So um, that's kind of like the Netflix chaos monkey approach where they intentionally break things so that they're forced to have this culture of resiliency, which is kind of cool. I, I've always liked that idea, but um, it's not not something that we've implemented at this point. Uh, you know, it's just you need like a certain level of scale, I think, before you start wiping out database servers randomly. Yeah, no, I was going to say like, yeah, it's kind of cool when you're at the point where you have, you know, like 5,000 developers and 2,000 microservices and 35 databases, maybe. Yeah, exactly. But for now, you know, we'll deal with our one server, one database server and actually make money as a small company, which is amazing. That's right. I, I you know, I feel like probably the, the most overarching thing, which I've said a couple of times, I think, throughout the show is that, like, don't do anything until you have a reason to do it, you know? Um, and it's, it's kind of like the argument that you shouldn't over-engineer things. While it's great if you're able to, like, exactly predict what your future needs are going to be and plan accordingly. Um, when you're starting a new project and you're still kind of discovering your market niche, it's really, really hard to predict these things accurately. And you can spend a lot of time going down a rabbit hole that 
um, leads you nowhere. Or in fact, it might it might even make things worse if you you know go the complete opposite direction. So um, I, I'm a huge fan of like doing absolutely nothing until something really needs to happen. And my my personal threshold for when something needs to happen is relatively high. So um, customer support is actually like a really good example of that that we're going through right now at Passive. So um, our user base has been growing quite strongly um, and we're, we're pretty pleased with the growth. And it's just been, um, you know, myself and my business partner, the two of us like managing all customer support requests personally up until now. Uh, but it's grown so much um, and like there's so much going on now that we're actually getting more customer support requests than um, is easy for us to manage ourselves. And, you know, up until now, our way of managing support requests is like we have a feedback email and a feedback form. And when someone submits this form or sends an email to this particular address, it shows up in both of our inboxes and we just respond to the email. And that's nice and easy, except that when you start getting like, say, 10 requests a day, you have to keep track of them because you can't resolve them all immediately and you have to know what state they're in. And like it's, it's a basic customer support management thing, which we were running manually through email and CCing each other on to make sure we weren't stepping on each other's toes. But, you know, we've kind of hit the breaking point now where clearly we need something that scales. And so now is the time to set up a customer support system, you know, <laughs> like uh, and you know, yes, we could we could have done that a year ago, and maybe it would have been a nice thing to do. But it also would have been like one more thing to manage when we didn't need it, and we probably wouldn't even have used it because it would have been a bur- more of a burden than a benefit at the time. Yeah, no, that that is really really good advice and totally relatable because it just happened to me recently, like the same exact thing almost. Like this podcast, you know, I made a post about it in a subreddit in the Django subreddit, and up until then, I was dealing with you know occasionally people filling out the form to want to be on the show, and then I woke up and there was. 30 of uh, new submissions to be on the show. And suddenly like trying to schedule and keep track of 30 different uh, episodes is insane. So like I had to graduate to like using a Kanban board to like, did I contact the person? Did we schedule it? Is it recorded? And just like move it through, you know, typical to what you would do for support tickets. So yeah, that advice, like totally different uh, business problem, but exactly the same type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And congratulations, by the way, like, um, I think it's great what you're doing with this podcast and I'm really happy that you're seeing some success with it and interest in the developer community. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I really appreciate that. And speaking of thanks, like, you know, thanks a lot for coming on the running in production podcast. Uh, It was really great having you on. Thanks. I really enjoyed being here. It's always great to talk shop. Yeah. So before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I could share a link to our, uh, our main website. Um, So our uh, domain is getpassive.com. That's G-E-T-P-A-S-S-I-V dot com. Um, there's no E on the end of passive, just in case anyone's keeping track. Um, yeah, so that takes you to our main page. It tells you about our application. Um, you can learn more about the company. You can, um, if you have a brokerage account with one of the brokers we support, you can try it out. Uh, right now, we support TD Ameritrade, Interactive Brokers, uh, Quest Trade, and Alpaca. And there are more in the works. It's just that, um, you know, getting on a brokerage API is often not an easy thing to do. There's, you know, regulatory compliance and stuff. Um, But more are coming. And uh, in the long run, we aim to be everywhere. Right. I guess if people want to request a brokerage, they can email you. That will go through your new shiny new customer support pipeline. Exactly. (laughs) Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in. And I'll see you in the next one.
You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.